0: Chapter 9 of Soldier's Letters to Charming Nelly This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dale Latham. A Soldier's Letters to Charming Nelly by J. B. Polly. Chapter 9 Incidents at Fredericksburg camp near fredericksburg virginia december twenty eighteen sixty two an hour before daylight on the eleventh of this month the thundering boom of two heavy guns awoke the sleeping confederate army scarcely had its echo ceased to reverberate through the wooded hills and hollows south of rappahannock river when every southern soldier was on his feet armed and equipped to meet the enemy whose coming it announced Not a thought of defeat disturbed the minds of the tried veterans who had driven McClellan's vast and well-appointed army from the gates of Richmond, routed popes at Second Manassas, and sent a mass of demoralized fugitives to the shelter of the entrenchments around Washington City, and held their own at Sharpsburg against the doubly outnumbering forces commanded by McClellan Redavivas. The battle had been promised by Burnside to the northern people. Lee counted on and made arrangements for it, and not a brigadier-general of the Confederates but knew his place in the lines of defense. When the dense fog that lay low over the wide, level valley of the south side lifted on the morning of the twelfth, and the sun of the cloudless sky touched the earth with its sheen of light, the scene had changed. The ground next to the river, which the day before was yellow with stubble of grass and grain, was now blue with Yankee uniforms. The monotony relieved only by the glistening of burnished arms, and the bright color of a hundred flags. Massed between railroad and river, division behind division, artillery in the front, cavalry in the rear, and infantry in the center and protected by the heavy siege-guns planted on the low range of hills crowning the north bank of the stream, Burnside's army was an imposing, awe-inspiring spectacle. Mary's Hill is a spur of high land that approaches within half a mile of the river and terminates in a bluff overlooking the little city nestling between it and the stream. At the foot of this bluff runs a narrow wagon trail paralleled with the river and on the side of the road next to the city is a low fence built of stone at nine o'clock on the morning of the fourteenth the battle began in earnest on the top of the hill and close to the edge of the bluff there was a battery and behind the stone fence crouched cobb's brigade of georgians one of the regiments being the gallant eighteenth which when in our brigade complimented us by its willingness to be known as the third texas to assault this position was a desperate undertaking and it would seem that the calculating death-fearing simon pure yankees shrank from it with a dread that even unlimited supplies of whiskey could not abate foreigners though were plentiful in the federal army and the loss of a few thousand more or less would break no yankee hearts therefore i imagine meager's irish brigade was selected for the sacrifice but even irish hearts had to be tempered for the ordeal and to this end it was necessary not only to appeal to their love for old ireland but to imbue them with a supplemental fictitious courage only when a sprig of arborvitae stolen from the deserted yards of the town, was pinned upon their caps to remind them of the shamrock of their native isle, their throats moistened liberally, and their canteens filled with liquor, did they become ready to move forward as an initiatory forlorn hope. Between the last houses of the town proper and the stone fence stretched a piece of level open ground about two hundred yards wide, Entering this, the Federals halted a second or two to reform their lines, and then, some shouting, Aaron, go brah, and others, the Yankees, hooza! They rushed impetuously forward against a storm of grape and canister that, as long as the guns on the hilltop could be sufficiently depressed, tore great gaps in their ranks. But wavering not, they closed together and rushed onward until within fifty yards of the stone fence, when in one grand simultaneous burst of light, sound, and death came the blinding flash, the deafening roar, and the murderous destruction of two thousand well-aimed rifles, the wild, weird, blood-curdling Confederate yell, and two thousand Irishmen sank wounded or dead, and a cowed and demoralized remnant sought safety in inglorious flight seven assaults were made on the stone fence during the day and five thousand men were sent to eternity before burnside convinced himself that the position was impregnable only two regiments of our division were engaged in any undertaking that might be called a battle these were the fifty-seventh and fifty-fourth north carolina regiments composed of conscripts young men under twenty and old men, all dressed in homespun, and presenting to the fastidious eyes of us veterans a very unsoldierly appearance. But we judged hastily. Ordered to drive back the enemy, they not only charged with surprising recklessness, but kept on charging until, to save them from certain capture, General Hood peremptorily recalled them. As they passed our brigade on their return, one old fellow halted, wiped the powder grime from his weather-beaten face with the sleeve of his coat, and wrathfully exclaimed, "Darn old Hood anyhow, he jest didn't have no business ter stop us when ween's was whooping the blue bellies to hell and back, and ef ween's had her been you Texicans, we'd did it. It was, I think, on the 14th that our brigade was lying, presumably on its arms, in a forest of tall timber, but near enough to the front to get into the line at a moment's notice. A blanket had been spread on the ground, and four or five men were seated around it playing poker. A hand was dealt, and Bill Smith felt happy. He held four sixes. Two of his companions were also lucky, and when one of them bet fifty beans, they were playing cent, Annie. The other raised him two hundred. Confident of winning, for two hands of fours were seldom held in the same deal, Bill, with fine pretense of bluffing, looked over his cards long and anxiously, and finally said, in a trembling voice, I see your bets, gentlemen, and... Go you five hundred better! Scarcely were the words out of his mouth when a shell from a long-range cannon struck the dead limb of a tree nearby and sent a piece of it against Bill's breast with such a force as to knock him backwards to the ground, the cards flying from his hands, each in a different direction. Jumping to his feet and glaring wrathfully on everyone in sight, he exclaimed, Damned if I can't whip the cowardly whelp who threw that chunk! Now his time to cheep if he's got any sand in his craw. But nobody cheeped. Bill meant every word he said. Was well known as a man who could not be insulted with impunity. And it took quite a while and a considerable argument to persuade him that the person responsible for his loss was the other side of the Rappahannock fully two miles away. The Battle of Fredericksburg has been no exception to the rule in furnishing us with a feast, lots of pure coffee and unlimited quantities of desiccated vegetables. Soup made of the latter has been the first, last and sometimes middle course of every meal I've eaten for a week. Confident that the Yankees will be in no hurry to risk a reputation of the drubbing they have received we are making preparations for the winter snow has fallen to the depth of several inches but wood is plentiful and most of us drew an extra supply from the yankees in the way of blankets i sleep in a tent with our adjutant but mess with my german friend weber he is not only a good and economical cook but is willing to act in that capacity without relief and this last consideration appeals strongly to my keen sense of fitness of things, while our alliance as messmates began only a few days ago. our friendship dates from the retreat from Yorktown. He is a happy possessor of a huge pipe as German as himself, the bowl of which lined with iron, holds fully an eighth of a pound of tobacco. For facilities of transportation as well as because he loves the weed the pipe is always hanging from his mouth on the march and within reach of it when he lies down to sleep coming up from yorktown everybody's tobacco except weber's got wet and weber refused peremptorily to divide it with several who at different times applied to him it was a case of wet or dry tobacco with me and i schemed Catching the old fellow off to himself, I said, "'Give me some dry tobacco, Weber, please. Mine is wet and won't smoke.' He glanced at me quickly and suspiciously, and answered gruffly, "'I gifs no mooch tobacco avay.' "'I know you don't,' said I. "'And I don't blame you for refusing to divide with everybody. "'But give me some now, and when we get to our knapsacks, "'I'll give you half of mine.' well den, he replied opening his heart and tobacco pouch simultaneously and beaming upon me with the first smile i ever saw on his face dat vash and not only then but until i had a chance to dry my own tobacco Weber's pouch was constantly at my command of course i made my word good when i got to my knapsack and since then tobacco is common property between us. Why did you join the Confederate Army, Weber? I asked one day. It's vash my business, replied he. I fash been a soldier in Charney all ze time. You would have joined the Northern Army then, if you had been in the North, wouldn't you? I asked again. Oh, ya," yeah, he answered. Votish der difference? votish got to come, will come anyway, and to be a soldier, bosh my business. While I write, some of my comrades are exchanging compliments with half a regiment of cavalry that is marching by, which incident reminds me of another. One day on the trip from Winchester, while our brigade was encamped near Culpeper Courthouse, a lone virginia cavalryman came wandering in in an offensively lordly way through the camp had he come afoot little attention would have been bestowed on him and he would likely have been suffered to depart in peace and happiness presumptuous enough however to bestride a gallant steed whose hoofs stirred up more or less dust he promptly became the cynosure of all eyes about the strongest feeling infantry and cavalry have for each other is that of contempt down in the bottom of the heart the foot soldier nurses an idea that his mounted comrades lack a great deal of doing their whole duty in killing and taking the chances of being killed while from his elevation on the back of a horse your cavalryman feels himself a superior being and looks down with an air of humiliating pity upon an arm of his service which must depend on its own legs for transportation. When, therefore, it appeared that this particular gentleman had no other object in view than to gratify an idle and impertinent curiosity concerning a people of whom he had heard the most wonderful tales, the Texans, not being in holiday attire or in the humor to be closely inspected by strangers, determined to trade a little upon their reputation for bloodthirstiness. A fair opportunity was given them, for it happened that, for the purpose of solving some doubt which their cursory view, failed to settle or remove, the visitor came to a temporary halt in the middle of the camp and proceeded to look, at his leisure, on the strange surroundings. Immediately encircled by a dozen or more Texans, several of them with their guns, others with pistols belted around their waists and all wearing either naturally or intentionally the most reckless and daredevil airs imaginable he suddenly lost his look of unconcern and began to glance uneasily around in search of an avenue of escape from his admirers one fierce-looking fellow stepped to the side of his horse and assuming the manner of a sick man just out of the hospital laid his hand on the virginian scabbard and in a whining voice asked couldn't you pull your jobber out for a minute mister just to please a sick man the laugh that followed the request caused a flush of anger to overspread the countenance of the horseman and he was about to make an angry reply when his attention was arrested by the colloquy between two of his entertainers which although not at all personal in character, was not calculated to reassure its hearer and object the tone, manner, and looks of the speakers, indicating something more than mere idle banter. "'How much is it, Tuck?' asked the one, with a significant glance at the Virginian. "'That long straight offers for the body of a dead Virginian cavalryman?' "'A two thousand dollars in gold.' "'answered Tuck. "'And if a feller wasn't particularly squeamish, "'it'd be powerful easy to get the body.' "'Why, Tuck,' protested the first speaker, "'you wouldn't think of killing this feller, would you?' "'Why not?' replied Tuck, "'looking at his gun, apparently to see if it was capped. "'That's the only way I know of to get the money.' none of this damned cavalryman fellers ever get close enough to a live Yankee to be killed the gallant virginian lost not a word or a movement of the participants in this conversation and knowing texans only by repute deemed it prudent to work himself and steed to the edge of the crowd experiencing just enough difficulty in this undertaking to increase his very natural apprehensions of bodily harm once there he bestowed a hurried but tremulously polite good morning gentlemen on the party assembled in his honor and went off at a brisk trot he was allowed to reach the outskirts of the grove without molestation then a gun cap snapped behind him and even his iron nerve could not restrain him from glancing back in when he discovered tuck on his knees gun in hand hurriedly fumbling In his cap box for another cap, from clapping both spurs and whip to his steed and disappearing in a cloud of dust amid the derisive shouts and jeers of the brigade. Chapter nine Recording by Dale Latham.